0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note, i may register, represent, represent Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for WisdomTree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those who WisdomTree are affiliates. We're going to have a fascinating show today. Uh, the first half of the show, we're going to be talking to former Fed Vice Chair Don Cohn, who's now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Don was on our program in December coming into the year, uh, right as there was a big Fed pivot going on. Uh, professor Siegel's going to talk a lot about his take on what's happening in the markets and the Fed. Uh, professor, we've had two back to back 75 basis point hikes. How are you looking at things now? Yeah,
2: and happy to be back. Um, uh, I've, I've been in uh, Europe, uh, Copenhagen. Norwegian fjords. It was a, a fantastic trip. Uh, uh, I didn't get stuck in airports, and I guess that Amazing. makes it a success in and of itself. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was following uh, what is happening. I mean, there, it, there's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, uh, the 10-year at 263, I mean, that's a four-month low. I mean, we have to go back to late March, early April uh, before we get the low, and that's a major reason, of course, why stocks have gone up. I mean, I'm looking at the 10 year tips now, nine basis points. Now, this is a rate that was nearly 1%. And, you know, the real rate is what discounts stock prices. So, um, uh, you know, that going down is very important. But what is also very important is despite this very slow economic activity, you know, we can, you know, debate about whether we want to call this a recession or not, earnings are basically. Holding up. Yes, certain firms are disappointing, but other firms are surprising. And um, uh, yes, some of the forward guidance more cautious. But I took a look at the estimates of the earnings. And of course, I know there's some people that say the analysts are way behind the curve and lowering what earnings are going to be. But we're already one third to one half done in the earnings season. They factor that in, and earnings are really not down from where they were in January. Uh, for uh, the 2020 earnings, I mean we're we're still seeing numbers between 220 and uh, 230 um, on, on operating earnings. Uh, they may come down a bit, but that's what we've been saying. We, I, I said I thought earnings are going to hold in despite look we've, we've, we've two consecutive quarters of negative uh, GDP growth. Let me say I'm really excited to talk to Don uh, again. I actually re-listened to the December podcast. That we had to refresh my memory, although I remembered a lot of uh, our excellent discussion um, that we had uh, there. So um, I, I think um, I think we could bounce in because we we could we, that that'll incorporate a lot of talk about what actually uh, is going on in the market and what we think. Um, so Don, are you there?
3: Uh, I am Jeremy. It's uh, great yeah. to be with you again. I it's did great. not listen to re-listen to the December uh, broadcast, so hit me with. It'll all be fresh to me.
2: All right, I'll hit it fresh to you. So, uh, I, well, I guess we're just about August, so we're you know nine, ten months. It, the Fed had just had its December meeting. The pivot was beginning. I I, I said it. Look, I said the startling thing. In September, no one expected a rate hike this year. We're talking about 25 basis points. And then it shot up to three hikes, three 25 basis point hikes. Now we're doing three, we're doing three 25 basis points hike in one, one meeting. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, we talked a lot. I've been warning a lot about the inflation, never thought it was temporary. I talked a lot about excess money supply. We discussed it. Um, uh, And I want to, you know, talk about that also because, as you probably know, if you've been following the money supply, there has been an absolute sharp reversal, not that it's going – well, it is going down. The last four months has been negative growth of the money supply. The money M2 money supply, which we just got last Tuesday um, for the month of June. Is up 0.8% from December of last year. Uh, And this was uh, the money supply that went up over 20%, 25% in 2020, and another, uh, I think, 15% in 2021. And I was screaming my head off, saying, this is going to be producing inflation unless we slow it down. Not only slow it down, we brought it to a screeching halt And I began to worry uh, four or five weeks ago of a a relatively sharp slowdown. Anyways, I've been talking a lot, Don. I want your take now of the current situation.
3: So I think uh, as we talked in December, the Fed was pivoting because they came to realize, perhaps late and by their own admission, I think a, a strength here is that Jay Powell has said, we were late. We didn't get it. Things haven't turned out the way we thought they would. And he's pivoted quite rapidly, as you remarked, 75 basis points on the previous 75 and then a and then the 25. So they've gone up very rapidly and pivoted here because they've realized the seriousness of this inflation problem. And it is quite quite serious. It's uh, not only high, it's widespread. It's not confined to a few things. Yes, the food and energy pieces are an important part, and that's causing a lot of misery, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And that's partly a result of uh, Putin's awful invasion of uh, Ukraine. But it's much more widespread than that. And in fact, we got what I thought was some pretty bad news today on inflation. So the Employment Cost Index, which is composition-adjusted wages, showed no sign of slowing at all. And uh, if anything, depends on which measure you look at, but it's, uh, if anything, it's picked up a little bit in the second quarter, uh, depending on the base you use and all that sort of thing, but there's no sense of any pressure coming off these labor markets. And any pressure coming
2: off wages. But we the... do have a little bit of, 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 I mean, jobless claims have been inching up. We've been getting uh, reports of less extreme uh, shortages. I mean, it's still extremely tight. I absolutely agree. Uh, and we're going to get JOLTS at again next uh, week. But DCI, don't forget, it's pretty backward looking. I mean, it's the second quarter. The slowdown has really been the last six, eight weeks Um You know, June was terrible. Um, July sort of stabilized. But um, I, I actually think that we're going to get official statistic inflation over the next six and eight months. Because as I talked about last December, we have a big lag in the reporting of housing inflation. The way they put it in, very different from what they did in the, the 60s and 70s and early 80s, uh, they, they really lag it. So the, if you talk to people, Don, and I, I want your opinion, in the housing market, they say prices have stopped going up. The official statistics will still say it. But you now, that, that super hot market that brought, brought, don't forget, from February of 2020 till now, you have the Case Shower Index up 40 to 45%. They say that real prices right now, it's not a collapse. We're not a 2007, you know, 8 uh, situation, but it is uh, people are beginning to withdraw bids. Uh, uh, people are getting below asking price for the first time in six, eight, 12 months. Um, we know oil has come way down. Uh, We know copper has come way down. A number of those commodities have come way down. We know freight has come down. The Baltic Dry Index has come down. The sensitive commodities have all come down. They, I think, are important. What do you think? I I think there's
3: some encouraging signs on inflation, and let's uh, go through them. One is what you were saying, that the tightening of financial conditions, Because of the Fed increases, along with the erosion of real income, because of the increases, particularly in food and energy prices, but in other prices as well, has slowed spending. And that's what's showing up in the also lagged GDP numbers. Um, So even if you take out the inventory stuff, but you get a small in the second quarter, a small increase in consumption, a small decline in investment, basically... Uh, real activity has leveled out. Uh, So that's encouraging, because that's what's got to happen to take pressure off the labor markets and off prices. I would say the other encouraging thing that's happened is in inflation expectations. So we've seen on the Michigan survey, which spooked the Fed in June by ratcheting higher, it was revised down a little bit, but it came in in a final number at two lower in July than in June. This is the long-term expectations. And some of the other measures of longer-term expectations have come off the boil a bit. So activity and expectations are encouraging. But I think as uh, we were just talking, it's uh, the, the problem is in the labor market. And their uh, job growth, or at least on the establishment survey, which is the more reliable viable one has continued to be very, very strong Uh, as the jolts will get new data, but the vacancies remain high. And while average hourly earnings have have moderated a bit, other measures of wages haven't. So I don't think we have evidence yet that we have the slowdown in wage increases and labor cost increases that
2: we need to uh, contain this inflation picture. But it's a catch-up, Don. I I think if if, uh, you see here now, after complaining for years that he was so far behind the curve, I get a little worried, how much further do you think he has to go? I don't think he has to go that much further. I think a lot of wages is is catch-up. Don't forget they haven't been keeping up with inflation. and we, I want to talk to you about this so importantly, because we've seen a collapse of productivity growth that is unprecedented in history. And I want to talk to you about that. But um, uh, I think a lot of it is is catch up. If he squeezes so hard to bring wage growth right down to zero, I think. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, but no one wants to the economy to down to zero. So well, two percent. Uh, I mean, they've they've been falling three, four, five percent below inflation. So we they, don't you think unless you think productivity has fallen and and a lot <laughs> a lot of it is is lagged. It's, it's I don't think that that is something that is going to be a forward pressure. Now, services. I agree with you. I mean, labor costs come into services and that has to be pushed down. But everything you know, and and it's mostly at the the lower end of the services that people not the work from home group. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I, I think I, I'm not as worried about that. Uh, I think there will be some feed through, but I I'm, I'm worried if he's going to try to crush that, I think it's going to be negative GDP in the, in the, in the third and fourth quarter too. Well, I think they have to be forward looking
3: in their monetary policy. But they also, and, and I was encouraged, actually, because, Jeremy, I was worried and expressed this concern publicly that they were tying outsized, very large increases in their policy rate to incoming inflation data. And as you were just arguing, that incoming inflation data is, a lot of it is very inertial, like in the I'm rental thing bag. we're talking about and very lagged. And that seemed to me an absolute formula for overshooting and having an unnecessary, uh, unnecessarily severe recession to control inflation. But I was encouraged because j Powell said, we are looking at activity indicators, we are looking at labor market indicators, and we are looking at price indicators. So to me, that said, their vision was, was broader than just looking at the inflation things. But having said all that, I do think the situation is so uh, difficult that they need to see actual evidence that inflation is coming off the boil. I mean, inflation, they've been surprised so often. We have been surprised, maybe not you, but me, have been surprised so often about how high and persistent inflation has been if I were at the Fed, I would want to see some concrete evidence that it was headed downward, not that it had already gotten to two or even close to two, but that it was headed downward Downward, and there was enough slack in product and labor markets to give me confidence that it was going to get back to 2%. So, uh, yeah,
2: But I think it's going to take a long time, given the way that index is constructed. And that's why I look at the the sensitive price indices, which, as you know, have come down quite dramatically. I mean, I, I, I actually, I'll, you know, we could talk about whether the, the the way they do the index, which I think is not not right. And you should, I mean, if they're going to wait for the CPI to start increasing two tenths of percent per month, it's going no. To, I don't even think even the I agree. lag in housing, it's going to be
3: whoa. So we I agree with you on that one, but I do think but, they can't do it purely by projection because the projections have been so bad over the last what do you think, year.
2: So let's talk. Of, let's talk. Uh, you know, uh, uh, numbers here. How high do you think they have to go? Uh, December Fed funds right now is trading at three twenty-eight. Um, the Fed funds is 233, so it's less than 1% more. Uh, December 23, the next year, is actually 273, 55 basis points lower. Um yeah. I heard that Larry Summers was uh, giving interviews today and thinking it has to go much higher. I don't think. Believe it or not, that the Fed funds rate has to go much higher. I don't even think it. it, All right. So it's two. Right now, Fed funds is 233 and they say December is 329. So they're saying another hundred basis points between now and then. I absolutely don't know whether we need to move that far. Again, uh, again, uh, you must follow the money supply, Don. Are you not surprised? I've uh, With that, we've had four months of decline of the money supply. I've looked back at the 75-year history of it, um, and I can't find a period uh, where the money supply has been falling for four months, ever. Even during the financial crisis, or the 70s and the uh, uh, recessions, or the 81, 82 recession, never happened.
3: But you couldn't find a period in which it grown so
2: much in the year and a before. half. Before, correct. So, but do you think so that, the,
1: think, the, the question is I
2: should we accept that, what's in the pipeline or slam on the brakes, cause right. a recession? So I, um, what, and we had this. What do you want to do? That. I I think you accept a lot of what's in the pipeline, and you, you 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 know, which again is partly lagged, and um, uh, uh, you know maybe as a result you don't need that much more. Uh, clearly, the market. Don't forget the December Fed funds rate was a good 30, 40 basis points higher just a, a month or so ago before this real softening in the economy took place. And I think that uh, what the market, the stock market wants to see is that the, the Fed, as you say, is cognizant of, of the online real indicators and just doesn't look about, oh, I'm going to wait until I see one ten, two tenths again on CPI uh, before I you know stop hiking um so I, I how high do you think they have to go down how high do you think on, they have on, to go? on the
3: money on the money supply jeremy here's the way i was looking at it and i think this came up last december i think that big growth in the money supply was evidence that the checks that the government sent out in 2020 in what was it march of 2020 march april yeah. of 2020 and again in march april of 2021, a huge proportion of that just got deposited in people's accounts. But that's probably because the Fed
2: bought it and gave them the money to do that. Otherwise, that money would not have come
3: The federal government sent them the checks and they deposited the checks in their bank accounts. And that would have happened whatever the Fed was doing. Now the No, I I
2: disagree, Don. I disagree. I disagree. They They would run a huge deficit. The Fed said, I'm not buying it. They'd have to go to the bond market and borrow it. And the interest rates would have gone up much earlier, which you and I agree on should have happened.
3: Right. So I agree. So the Fed enabled the government to fund those deficits at lower rates, than they would have if the Fed weren't buying those securities. That's correct. Zero so what's happening right now, and you can see it in the savings rates that were published today, for example, as people are beginning to draw down those accounts in order to support their spending. So the excess savings is being used. So I wouldn't draw a straight line, unlike you. I think where, where you and I both saw significance to the increase in the money supply and the flattening this year I wouldn't emphasize the decline but I think your point is it really hasn't gone anywhere since December so I wouldn't draw a straight line from there to prices but I would draw a line from there to spending and to the savings available for spending and that's being drawn down and as that's drawn down I think that'll 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 make households more reluctant to spend, so I do think it's uh, it will take it. It's part of the slowing in economic activity. So, what do
2: you think is the peak Fed funds rate? What, what do you think they have to get to? What is your opinion, Don? So, I'm very uncertain
3: about this, and I would, as Jay Powell said, take it meeting by meeting, on the, and interpret the incoming data. I think the market and uh, Jeremy Siegel have too low a number in there. I think they'll have to get up towards four. I don't think, but I don't know. So the first thing I would say is I don't have any idea. No one has any idea. This is such an unusual situation. You you realize that
2: four would really invert the curve, really invert it. Right, because
3: the market has a very... Ten-year is at 262. I mean, they the, have to the market right now. Has four, four. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's high inversion. Well, I think it depends on the persistence of inflation, and I guess I I might have said before, and and that's what I find discouraging about today's data on both prices, PCE prices. So a little less emphasis on that rental thing is a smaller proportion of PCE and on the ECI. I think there's more persistence and momentum and inflation outside of the supply shocks uh, in addition to the supply shocks than I thought. So I think it's going to yeah, take It's, it's more, funny,
2: you, you know, you were more cool. Absolutely you were more uh, optimistic in December, and I was very pessimistic, and we're almost flipped here on what we think forward in, in inflation is. I want to ask you something that has been, I think it's one of the biggest macroeconomic puzzles around. Uh, as you know, productivity measured in the first quarter was what minus minus seven percent or something, one of the lowest in history. I'll actually get the number um, for you. i should I should have it. And now, with the GDP, and we, look at as you said, we have job growth and negative GDP. In this quarter, we're going to have another strikingly negative productivity, two quarters of negative productivity that has never been seen before. Do you have any explanation for that?
3: No, I don't. And I have great skepticism. So I, th- I, I agree with you. It is a huge puzzle. And uh, I mean, I, I guess one point would be there are, over the last year and a half, two years of pandemic, there have been huge shifts in where economic activity has been from the goods sector, services, buy at home, buy in the store. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on, and I think it's probably the case that that may have a negative effect on productivity, but even more, i I'm skeptical about the measurement, huh? So
2: yeah. it doesn't that, make me, sense. But, to but the, the who, I, I now got the data, it was minus 7.3%. Uh, you have to go back like 60 years to get something as terrible as that. And, and let me just mention uh, I think Goldman Sachs came out with an estimate now because we've got GDP and we've got uh, employment growth and all that. It's negative 6% in the second quarter. We have never seen anything that terrible. Right, uh, Right. and uh, now you're saying you're skeptical about the data. However, it's a simple division of hours worked, as you know, in the GDP. What is wrong? You're saying one of those is being measured. Which
3: one? GDP GDP is going to be revised up. It doesn't make sense to me that businesses are hiring hundreds of thousands of people a month, and that's a pretty accurate data. And they're not producing anymore with that. Those people aren't contributing. The marginal product of those three hundred thousand workers a month that they've
2: been hiring is zero. Oh, come well, on! Let me tell you that something. Can't, I, I, think can't even, uh, you know what I think it is. I think we're mismeasuring hours worked. I think, but the, the stay-at-home, I, I, you know, I don't think they're working all those hours that they're. That they say, I don't know how they estimate
1: it.
2: Um, I think, oh, yeah, I think thing five. Maybe they're working step. five hours or maybe six hours. I don't. Well, I'm know. working
1: more hours, professor. I don't know about that.
2: <laughs> well, you and I are, Jeremy. But, <laughs> because, but I don't know. There's I don't really know. Are, are they really? The how? Morning, so. so, so, just a minute, you're, You would, but, but to, to, to say that the GDP is going to be upward because. Uh, you you, will, you're, you have to be talking about revisions that uh, are far greater than what I have seen that's come out. of don't forget, we've already got the third and final regular revision of first quarter. Um, and we had the same thing. We had job growth with negative GDP. Now we have job growth, actually a little bit more moderate. We've had a collapse of ours, by the way. Ours has gone down. But I'm just wondering... Uh, maybe is it hours worked? Or uh, so uh, are you saying we could? It, we, you're right, Don. I worked it out myself with two to three hundred thousand a month, three hundred, four hundred thousand a month. We should have had GDP growth of two percent or three or something like that. Right. 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 And, I don't know. Jeremy. And so something I'm... is being really in this whole discussion. Something is terribly being mismeasured. It's either hours worked or it's GDP. Um
1: I would change the I, I narrative totally if we're in a recession.
2: Right. <laughs> I mean, and and, and and if it's, of course, if it's GDP, then we're not in a recession. If it really should be plus two or three, um, and, and all this discussion about that, I I, I I disregard this as something that, I mean, I, these are not minor numbers. Something yeah. is being hugely mismeasured here. Yeah, and I, I guess I my understanding
3: is that the employment report, the establishment report is usually pretty accurate and not revised. So I was putting more confidence there, but you may be right about the hours, but I, Mm -hmm. we agree. Something's being mismeasured. What What we don't know is what it is and what the consequences of that are. And I would say just to support or an uh, an aspect of what you're talking about, this negative growth in productivity, and what I was talking about, the big growth in wages, is unit labor costs are skyrocketing. So if those two data points are right and people are getting paid a lot more per hour, but their productivity
2: is declining. But no, but in real terms, they're paying less per hour. Don't forget that's a nominal figure. Real wages have gone down. Now, I'm saying real wages may not have gone down. They're just working less hours. Okay. maybe possible. Uh, therefore, sure they're, they're, I you you see, my, my explanation is if, if, in fact, they're working less hours, then you can expect. Explain why real wages are going down. In other words, they're being paid to work eight and they're working seven or six, right. and so their real wages actually haven't gone down as much as the data shows, which is a dramatic decline in real wages. Right. So
3: it would be interesting. Here's here's get one of your graduate students working on this. So one thing would be to look at how this differs in those sectors. In which people are actually at work, yeah, and those yeah. in which exactly. they're working from home. So if yes,
2: if you see, to, but I, I would say that this this, 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 is, home, this is just such a huge puzzle. And means policy; it's it's relative to what the Fed is going to do, and relative to an awful lot. Um, let me just say. And I'm going to poke fun, a little fun of you. You wrote an article it was in April, Two Cheers for the Fed. Was that is am I right?
1: Yes, booking? that's
2: correct. Well, yes. uh, could I change the uh, title to Two Jeers for the Fed? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think you're letting so Powell funny. off way too easy, Don. I mean, <laughs> well, I, 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 yes, I, he, pivoted, he pivoted very late. And I do want to ask you, I know we don't have much time left. Uh, Jeremy, how much time do we have? Two minutes?
1: We're at, we're at, we're at 12.30. Let's, let's we can wrap it up here.
2: Okay. we didn't, I'm just wondering about, you, you're seeing a lot of open new ideas. I'm just wondering whether in the discussions people were saying, hey, guys, let's take a look at the money supply and things that we've been talking about then. Because I think... You know, I, I think there may be too much group sync at the Fed. But I, I thought that was a, a good a good article. I, I would like to – I think you and I could have a great debate on that issue, Don. Okay. Well, and I look I'll, forward anyways, to it. I, I, we do have to wrap it up. Thank you again. It's always stimulating for being on. And maybe six, nine months from now, I, I, I hope we can come together again.
1: Don Cohn, former Fed Vice Chair, Professor Siegel. Great to have you back. We'll talk to you again next week, reflecting on all things happening. We'll be talking with a mortgage expert, a securitized credit expert to hear his view on what's happening in the fixed income. Dave is a managing director and head of securitized fixed income and senior portfolio manager for non-agency and agency mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, and asset-backed securities at Voya Investment Management. Voya subadvises one of our strategies in that space. Dave, Welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: Thank you so much. It is great to be here. Great into an awesome week, I think, overall. We'd all agree for markets, at least relative to the the year-to-date experience so far. So thank you.
1: And, and you're at front and center of a key discussion. Um, you were listening into the first half discussion yeah. with Professor Siegel and uh, former Fed Vice Chair Don Cohn. There a lot of debates on policy. When you get into how they're executing policy, we're going to talk to you a little bit about the balance sheet runoff and how that impacts mortgages. But reflect on what you heard in the first half. How, how, do, you, how do you look at the, the Fed decisions? What's happening? Who, which side of the debate are you on?
0: Yeah. And that's, you, you pointed out, it's a debate. You, uh, those two gentlemen were more than happy to debate one another. You don't often hear that in a, uh, a civilized podcast. So I think that fact, in and of itself, that they they, they shake out on opposite sides of the debate, it, it sort of explains to a degree, or maybe a better way to say it is it's an example of the volatility that's out there. There's so much uncertainty when two great Thinkers, two great experienced <clears throat> minds in uh, well-trained in uh, the schools of economy uh, can have a, you know, come at the same issue from different sides and make very credible cases. So I guess that struck me. Another thing that I was uh, definitely made note of is Professor Siegel in the beginning kind of setting the table for what he wanted to discuss with, <clears throat> with Don. He referenced as a key piece of the puzzle what's going on in, in my markets and housing. Um, so the impulses from housing, which have, have always been a strong piece of the economy, they are extremely relevant in this in, the, in that broad debate. Uh, so that's struck out stuck out to me as well, I would say, from uh, from a, a pretty broad ranging conversation where they tackle They try to tackle a lot of tough issues.
1: So as you as you see the path for rates, you know, one of the things the professor talked about, uh, if they get to four percent, uh, or even if they don't get to 4%, even if they hike towards what's in the, the Fed for the future market now, you'd get a pretty decent inversion of the curve. Um, but you'd also have the balance sheet runoff. How do you think the balance sheet's going to impact the longer end and particular uh, the, the space that you're off you're, you're investing in, in mortgage back market?
0: So there's two, there's two sort of conflicting sentiments almost that I've got on that piece. Uh, on the positive side, the way that the Fed has guided us on this, the transparency that underlies their plan, uh, there's almost a moderate, moderate uh, sort of feel in my assessment to the way that they've, um, they've talked about this plan and how it's on the autopilot, it's behind the scenes, the real focus and the real lever that they've got to, to push down demand is on the rate side. That's pleasing, that's soothing, I think, to a degree, but I'll say the other side definitely runs in conflict and probably overwhelms my thinking. It makes me a little more emotional to the negative side, and that is quantitative tightening. Has historically been linked to and correlated to, uh, you know, some pretty dire consequences for for markets. Uh, There was some focus in the prior part of the discussion on N2 and its impact, and they debated just how directly impactful that is. As Professor, I think, Professor Siegel was more on the more impactful side, and Cohen is viewed as impactful, certainly, but less direct. Um, I think this quantitative tightening piece, it fits into that part of the discussion to a degree. And so I, there is a element of fear that as we progress uh, down this path that the Fed's put us on, you know, we're going to be doubling uh, the degree to which runoffs is going to be allowed to occur uh, from the Fed's balance sheet here, what, in another, I believe, uh, month or two months now. Um, and it's going to be, I think, uh, a, a bit of a, a source of volatility, how, how the market recalibrates to that much more duration. Uh, being needed to be financed away from the Fed. So I think that I I, I painted kind of a conflicting picture there. But in the end, I think that that piece of it is probably a, a source of more volatility as the year progresses rather than less.
1: Yeah, particularly what was going on in the last six weeks as the, the tenure's gone from three fifty back down to the two sixty seven. There's a lot of volatility there. Uh, and, and perhaps yeah. uh, more coming more supply coming back to the market. You might see rates pressure higher. What how do you think about the value in the mortgage market? Like what where is is today, you know, you've seen yeah. high yield spreads widen out dramatically and then last few few weeks they've they've tightened a bit, but how would you say the spreads that you're seeing in, in the asset back market? market, talk through what they are today, what they are usually, what, what kind of value do you see?
0: Okay, excellent. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of different pieces in our universe and securitized needles to say with varying risk profiles on the agency side that clearly would be, I think, on the kind of lower risk profile given the government, uh, implied government guarantee on those instruments. But, yeah, so bleeding over into or, or transitioning a little bit over into the the, the pieces of the market that do have credit risk, you referenced ABS. There's a number of acronyms I could throw at you as well. DLOs, non-agency RMBS and CNBS, both non- and agency CNBS. In almost every case, Jeremy, we see spread levels that are reflective of scenarios that we we see maybe half a percent of the time. Um, so, So big standard deviations behind the moves we've seen year to date. It doesn't always equate to great risk-adjusted returns. There are sources of uh, uncertainty, as we as we teased out from the last conversation, in the economy, and you know, that's going to manifest over time, one way or the other, um, either positively or negatively. Uh, and so we have to handicap. You know, where where are those better risk-adjusted returns? And I'll I'll, I'll profile a couple places where uh, we think things have gotten overly distorted uh and, and 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 i think have completely dismissed the positive underlying fundamentals uh, one would be in various pockets of the non-agency rbs market there's two subsectors in particular i'll just name briefly we can get into them in any detail you like credit risk transfer it's uh, been extremely distorted it was probably the first securitized credit market to to start to capitulate into this broader market drawdown earlier this year so an epicenter of all i would say and we see that cash flow there is underappreciated and and probably overly discounted. And the other one would be uh, a smaller subsector, probably even less well-known than credit risk transfer, called non-qualifying mortgage-backed securities. That space, I think, has gone a bit of a washout even, I have to say. So those pieces of the market we view as particularly distorted uh, and attractive on the Rethi side. And like the CMBS side, you name it. And that part of the market has really suffered amidst this drawdown. We would highlight, though, um, parts of that market where the collateralization is provided by Interline property type of multi-family buildings. So there as well, we would I would point to a place where the, the cash flow has been overly discounted amidst all this noise and volatility, and place where we see uh, significant value. I, 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 I could go on. Believe me on that yeah. question. That's a great open-ended one, but I'll, I'll yeah. stop with that.
1: Well, so let's give some definition to these for people who there's a lot of acronyms, for people listening in their, in their cars the the general public here. Let's, talk, let's define some of those terms, non-agency, RMBS, credit risk transfer, and the others. Give people a little bit more color. What are those markets mm-hmm. that you're investing in?
0: Absolutely. It's in many ways Main Street America. So we're not talking about corporate credit here. We're mapping to a particular company and a management team and an industry and all those unique dynamics there that oftentimes can feel, removed from our day-to-day so securitized markets definitely connect broader with what's going on in our day-to-day lives as we as you said drive down the car in our in our, in our automobile that would be an example of a loan obligation if you've got a loan in your car that would likely collateralize uh, an ABS instrument and that's the back security um, using that example there we would tie that part of our market most closely to the consumer and, and how they make credit decisions whether they're borrowing, whether they're making repayments or not making repayments, hopefully that's not the case, but that would be a piece of our universe. Um, Non-agency RMBS, which stands for residential mortgage-backed securities, perhaps predictably, those are instruments that are backed by or secured by your house. If you happen to have a mortgage on that, uh, it's likely the payments are uh, repaying a bond potentially that we're invested in here at, at Voya. So We care deeply about what's going on in the housing markets and how uh, consumers make that decision to make that next mortgage payment or not. Somewhat similarly, uh, from a real estate perspective anyway, a part of our market is backed by commercial real estate, so things like office buildings, which is not a good place right now in our estimation. Um, Very uncertain, the outcomes there. But as an example, that would be a type of collateral that will uh, ultimately repay, the cash flows coming off that collateral will ultimately repay uh, investments we make on the commercial mortgage-back side of the equation. So. Does that profile it decently well, do you think, Jeremy, for our listeners?
1: Yeah, and, and what, what, what is there? what is the credit risk transfer? Give, give a little bit more background on that.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, thanks for yeah, bring me back to that. So credit risk transfer would be the, the same kind of room when I was talking about RMBS, residential mortgage-backed securities. It's a type of, of obligation that, in my mind, fits under that umbrella. However, it is a newer form of residential mortgage-backed credit. Uh, there was really a, a fallout from a good fallout. Uh, from the credit crisis, where our taxpayers had had enough of having liability from our government sponsored entities, which do, which have a great noble purpose in helping subsidize the, the cost of housing and providing access to home ownership. But ultimately, we needed to get the taxpayer away from having to bear the risk associated with potentially going through times like the credit crisis, where, uh, you know, there will be periods uh, in, in, in the economy where home, housing does not do particularly well and there could be losses that had to be had. So this market. Uh, uh, was created to help transfer some of the risks that the GSEs originate, uh, get it away from the taxpayers, more into the hands of the private markets where they can do sophisticated approaches to taking that risk and hedging that risk, and then off when appropriate can better uh, be equipped and manage that risk over time. That's what credit risk transfer markets uh, uh, stem from.
1: When you think about the total size of your space, uh, and you think about it versus traditional corporates or high yield or treasuries, and how do you think people should be sizing this in fixed income, given all that's going on, the challenges of the traditional sixty forty, and the sort of negative returns in bonds, like what, what, mm-hmm. how do you think people should be thinking about this space as a as a category?
0: That has been. I would tell you in my quest to help deliver securitized credit exposure to Boya's franchise uh, which I think I honestly do believe as a is a noble quest I think this is a a, a, a tremendously unappreciated way to diversify your fixed income exposure by and stay liquid uh, so it's underappreciated and the size question I think helps get people a little more comfortable that perhaps those that's not top of mind they haven't heard about it beyond my main street kind of hopefully, um, dispelling some of the mystique around the space and hopefully the size piece can can also help kind of nail that down as a place that you should absolutely consider as an allocation and, and if you were to total up all those different food groups that i profiled earlier uh you get to over three trillion in outstanding and if you layer in the agency side of the rmbs market which is the granddaddy that's another nine so you're over you're well over ten trillion um, uh, over 12, Yeah, well over $10 trillion, over $12 trillion in total across those food groups, which would put you in excess of high yield, EM, uh, bank loans. Uh, and you start to compete even with investment in the corporate credit markets. So it behooves you, I would say, from a size perspective, to take advantage of a well-selected, managed portfolio of risks from that market, uh, particularly if, if you buy into the fact that ultimately the risks we take are imminently understandable uh, on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis that
1: help perfect uh and and so in in terms of when you think about the you know building a portfolio um and and so so there's a number of places that focus just on mortgages you guys are thinking about asset-backed generally uh is is there places you 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 also mentioned commercial mortgage-backed is Mm -hmm. tricky for how for the office space. Um, and as, as a remote first organization, I understand why there. But is, are there places, other places of risk you see bubbling up? Is, is uh, anything that on the asset back side or, or others yeah. that you're thinking about?
0: Yeah. One thing in particular that I think would probably be useful for folks to hear about where we're seeing signs of stress, some of the, the early fallout, if you will, from the Fed's campaign to remove financial accommodation we're starting to see it unfortunately I have to say at the lower end of the consumer base um, so we and across the country we've got a range of, of income profiles and a, a range of um, experience uh, for folks managing their balance sheets and managing their, in, their income and uh, and so we have just a, a range of credit profiles bottom line that fall out from that and the lower uh, income, and I would also have to say younger parts of our society who haven't had the experience in dealing with unique economic environments, which we are certainly in now, I think everybody would agree, and really have been since uh, since the pandemic began, um, there we are seeing definitive signs of stress. We are seeing, even against the backdrop of unemployment rates at historically low levels, wage growth at uh, historically above trend levels, at least at a nominal pace, we are still seeing uh, default levels come higher for those those cohorts of society on their unsecured consumer loans, specifically, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second, that those levels of defaults are now uh, well in excess of what the run rate was pre the pandemic. Um, again, despite all these positive things that seem to be going on in the economy from an unemployment perspective and a, a wage growth perspective. And what I mean by this unsecured consumer loans, Jeremy anticipating a question there, is uh, you can actually go out onto the internet, or even through some of your financial institutions, more traditional financial institutions, and procure a term loan uh, that's unsecured, just based off of your own creditworthiness. That's actually relatively efficient to get. We have always viewed that as perhaps one of the more vulnerable parts of the consumer's balance sheet—an instrument that they may deprioritize amongst the other obligations they've got in periods of stress. Uh, now, are we in a period of stress that? The longest time has been no. Now it seems like we are as indicated by that metric. So that's one place we definitely have our eye on and are trying to be very defensive with how we take risk there in particular. And, and I think there's some macro things, some signaling that's uh, probably useful to take away from that.
1: That is very interesting. I mean, I've seen a few discussions about the car market becoming one that you might be starting to see be like one of the next subprime markets. Is that is that something you're hearing, seeing in any of the data? Is is, is there any follow-up on, on that con, un, unsecured consumer yeah. loan? there too?
0: I would tell you or concede to you that that was a, a place where we saw more pain coming than, than is actually materialized. In other words, we were overly defensive too soon there. Uh, we moved in anticipation of what we thought would be a, a lower price environment for both new and particularly though used cars sooner than later oh. over the course of the year. I think everybody would lament on your on our call today that has not materialized. In fact it's gone the other direction. Um, and and we thought that, that would that would fuel if, if if all of a sudden we were driving around in our cars we're starting to sense this collapse in values and your are paying if you have, have happen to have have had to finance that purchase of your car, if you're if you're making a sizable loan payment on that sizable cost of the or value of the vehicle that you purchased a year, two, three years ago, whatever it may be that might cause the marginal borrower to elect to make payments on other obligations rather than that car, allow it to be repossessed, uh, probably not cost them too much on their credit score. If they are indeed making that decision, they probably already have a, a lower credit score and potentially downsizing to some, a, a lower priced vehicle with a smaller payment in credit. I believe you, believe you me, would be available for that, bar making that choice. So we thought we'd see more of that impulse in the economy, but honestly we have not. If anything, the delinquency experience we've seen for that part of our universe has only really just started to moderate uh, and get back to levels close to what they were pre-pandemic. So there's probably a signal there, Jeremy, as well, that's macro in nature, that there is still cash in the system overall. Consumers have, have some additional wherewithal to continue to make payments, to continue to buy cars and support that side of the economy. And it probably doesn't hurt. Uh, in a somewhat perverse way, there still is a shortage of chips that causes that keeps production relatively low there. So, if you're thinking about downsizing, your 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 potential opportunity to do so may be a little more limited, or at least feel more limited to the average consumer, and that's probably helped on the margin keep those keep those that signal that delinquency signal a little bit lower, more moderate than otherwise would be.
1: Let me talk, we talk quickly on you know if you think about the market you're investing the big sort of ETFs and, and traditional exposures are index based mostly focused on mortgages. You guys take sort of an active approach and are combining these other asset backed opportunities with mortgages. Do you want to just give two minutes on as you see the challenges of a traditional index approach versus what you can do actively? Any any commentary on on that?
0: Yeah, actively this very vibrant dynamic. Uh, economic backdrop, and I'm sure other people would have more negative <laughs> things to say about the uh, market backdrop we've been in of all it's been. But in a world like that, your ability to be more dynamic and have access to a broader opportunity set and again actively manage that as you importantlyly put that word uh, is uh, of extreme value to to our clients. It uh, enables us to take some of these 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 more micro signals that we're able to get from this broad array of submarkets and places we can take risk. And really put them to work for clients in a real-time basis, as opposed to being forced to kind of follow more of a agnostic, benchmark-oriented approach to to to, to, to managing and taking risk. There, your active risk obviously is extremely limited in how you can react to those signals. Uh, so, a, an approach like ours, we think that you know we can add a lot more value to our, our clients. And believe me, we're highly motivated, of course, uh, to, to do so. In that quest, we view it as a as a, as a know a morally good thing to do um so day-to-day we're incredibly uh passionate about being able to do that and and we think we think we think it's reflected in results
1: uh and if i if i just did a few rapid fire questions uh how do you think where where do you think we end the year on fed funds (sighs) three and a quarter three and a quarter and and spread and and spreads to your universe is, is, a, is a sort of quick uh, average, in, and where do you think we end?
0: On the agency side right now, we're about 100. I bet we end up about 125, so modestly wider. Uh, and then outside of agency side, on the surrogate credit piece, I'll take a representative market there. I talked about TRT. N2s right now, oh goodness, are 450 area. I bet we end up that piece of the market 450, so modestly wider. Very but that carry out earns that. Keep that in mind. Carry out earns it.
1: Yep. Very interesting. Dave, um, you know, we didn't we, we the professor and Don Cohn went a little bit long, so we, a little bit shorter, but uh, I appreciate this conversation. A lot of interesting insights for uh, a, a oh, great great, uh, great day to, to come talk about this on on Behind the Market. Thank you so much for for joining us.
0: Absolutely my pleasure.
1: We've been talking with Dave Goodson, who's the head of Securitized Fixed Income, as senior portfolio manager at Voya Investment Management. We had a great conversation with Professor Siegel, Don Cohn, thinker, producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com.